0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: A Study in Scarlet by Arthur Conan Doyle. Part 1, chapters 5 and 6. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Chapter 5 Our Advertisement Brings a Visitor. Our morning's exertions had been too much for my weak health, and I was tired out in the afternoon. After Holmes's departure from the concert, I lay down upon the sofa and endeavored to get a couple of hours sleep. It was a useless attempt. My mind had been too much excited by all that had occurred, and the strangest fancies and surmises crowded into it. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw before me the distorted, baboon-like countenance of the murdered man. So sinister was the impression which that face had produced upon me, that I found it difficult to feel anything but gratitude for him who had removed its owner from the world if ever human features bespoke vice of the most malignant type, they were certainly those of Enoch J. Drebber of Cleveland. Still I recognized that justice must be done, and that the depravity of the victim was no condonement in the eyes of the law. The more I thought of it, the more extraordinary did my companion's hypothesis, that the man had been poisoned, appear. I remembered how he had sniffed his lips and had no doubt that he had detected something which had given rise to the idea then again if not poison what would have caused the man's death since there was neither wound nor marks of strangulation but on the other hand whose blood was that which lay so thickly upon the floor there were no signs of a struggle nor had the victim any weapon with which he might have wounded an antagonist as long as all these questions were unsolved i felt that sleep would be no easy matter either for holmes or myself his quiet self-confident manner convinced me that he had already formed a theory which explained all the facts though what it was i could not for an instant conjecture he was very late in returning so late that i knew that the concert could not have detained him all the time dinner was on the table before he appeared it was magnificent he said as he took his seat do you remember what darwin says about music he claims that the power of producing and appreciating it existed among the human race long before the power of speech was arrived at perhaps that is why we are so subtly influenced by it there are vague memories in our souls of those misty centuries when the world was in its childhood that's rather a broad idea, I remarked. One's ideas must be broad as nature if they are to interpret nature, he answered. What's the matter? You're not looking quite yourself. This Brixton Road affair has upset you. To tell the truth, it has, I said. I ought to be more case-hardened after my Afghan experiences. I saw my own comrades hack to pieces at my wand without losing my nerve. I can understand. There is a mystery about this which stimulates the imagination. Where there is no imagination, there is no horror. Have you seen the evening paper? No. It gives a fairly good account of the affair. It does not mention the fact that when the man was raised up, a woman's wedding ring fell upon the floor. It is just as well it does not. Why? "'Look at this advertisement,' he answered. "'I had one sent to every paper this morning, immediately after the affair.' He threw the paper across to me, and I glanced at the place indicated. It was the first announcement in the found column. "'In Brixton Road this morning,' it ran, "'a plain gold wedding ring, found in the roadway between the White Hart Tavern and Holland Grove. "'Apply Dr. Watson, 221B Baker Street, between 8 and 9 this evening.' "'Excuse me for using your name,' he said. "'If I use my own, some of these dunderheads would recognize it and want to meddle in the affair.' "'That is all right,' I answered. "'But supposing any one applies, I have no ring.' "'Oh, yes, you have,' said he, handing me one. "'This will do very well. It is almost a facsimile. "'And who do you expect will answer this advertisement?' why the man in the brown coat our florid friend with the square toes if he does not come himself he will send an accomplice would he not consider it as too dangerous not at all if my view of the case is correct and i have every reason to believe that it is this man would rather risk anything than lose the ring according to my notion he dropped it while stooping over drebber's body and did not miss it at the time after leaving the house he discovered his loss and hurried back but found the police already in possession owing to his own folly in leaving the candle burning he had to pretend to be drunk in order to allay the suspicions which might have been aroused by his appearance at the gate now put yourself in that man's place on thinking the matter over it must have occurred to him that it was possible that he had lost the ring in the road after leaving the house What would he do then? He would eagerly look out for the evening papers, in the hope of seeing it among the articles found. His eye, of course, would light upon this. He would be overjoyed. Why should he fear a trap? There would be no reason in his eyes why the finding of the ring should be connected with the murder. He would come. He will come. You shall see him within an hour. And then, I asked, "'Oh, you can leave me to deal with him, then. Have you any arms? I have my old service revolver and a few cartridges. You had better clean it and load it. He will be a desperate man, and though I still take him unawares, it is as well to be ready for anything.' I went to my bedroom and followed his advice. When I returned with the pistol the table had been cleared, and Holmes was engaged in his favorite occupation of scraping upon his violin. The plot thickens, he said, as I entered. I have just had an answer to my American telegram. My view of the case is the correct one. And that is? I asked eagerly. My fiddle would be the better for new strings, he remarked. Put your pistol in your pocket. When the fellow comes, speak to him in an ordinary way. Leave the rest to me. Don't frighten him by looking at him too hard. It is eight o'clock now, I said, glancing at my watch. Yes, he will probably be here in a few minutes. Open the door slightly. That will do. Now put the key on the inside. Thank you. This is a queer old book I picked up at a stall yesterday, De Jure Intergentis, published in Latin at Liège in the Lowlands in 1642. Charles Head was still firm on his shoulders when this little brown-backed volume was struck off. Who is the printer? Philippe de Croix, whoever he may have been. On the fly-leaf, in very faded ink, is written Ex Libris Guglielmi White. I wonder who William White was, some pragmatical seventeenth-century lawyer, I suppose. His writing has a legal twist about it. Here comes our man, I think. As he spoke, there was a sharp ring at the bell. Sherlock Holmes rose softly and moved his chair in the direction of the door. We heard the servant pass along the hall and the sharp click of the latch as she opened it. "'Does Dr. Watson live here?' asked a clear but rather harsh voice. We could not hear the servant's reply, but the door closed and someone began to ascend the stairs. The footfall was an uncertain and shuffling one. A look of surprise passed over the face of my companion as he listened to it. It came slowly down the passage, and there was a feeble tap at the door. "'Come in!' I cried at my summons instead of the man of violence whom we expected a very old and wrinkled woman hobbled into the apartment she appeared to be dazzled by the sudden blaze of light and after dropping a curtsey she stood blinking at us with her bleared eyes and fumbling in her pocket with nervous shaky fingers I glanced at my companion, and his face had assumed such a disconsolate expression that it was all I could do to keep my countenance. The old crone drew out an evening paper and pointed at our advertisement. It's this as has brought me, good gentleman, she said, dropping another curtsey. A gold wedding-ring in the Brixton Road. It belongs to my girl, Sally, as was married only this time twelve twelvemonth which her husband is steward aboard a union boat, and what he'd say if he come home and found her without her ring is more than I can think. He being short enough at the best of times, but more especially when he has the drink. If it please you, she went to the circus last night along with... Is that her ring? I asked. The Lord be thanked, cried the old woman sally will be a glad woman this night that's the ring and what may your address be i inquired taking up a pencil Uh, thirteen duncan street houndsditch a weary way from here the brixton Road does not lie between any circus and houndsditch said sherlock holmes sharply the old woman faced round and looked keenly at him from her little red-rimmed eyes the gentleman asked me for my address she said sally lives in lodgings at three mayfield place peckham and your name is my name is sawyer hers is dennis which tom dennis married her and a smart clean lad too as long as he's at sea and no steward in the company more thought of but when on shore "'What with the women, and what with liquor-shops?' "'Here is your ring, Mrs. Sawyer,' I interrupted in obedience to a sign from my companion. "'It clearly belongs to your daughter, and I am glad to be able to restore it to the rightful owner.' With many mumbled blessings and protestations of gratitude, the old crone packed it away in her pocket and shuffled off down the stairs. Sherlock Holmes sprang to his feet the moment she was gone and rushed into his room. He returned in a few seconds, enveloped in an ulster and a cravat. "'I'll follow her,' he said hurriedly. "'She must be an accomplice and will lead me to him. Wait up for me.' The hall door had hardly slammed behind our visitor before Holmes had descended the stair. Looking through the window, I could see her walking feebly along the other side, while her pursuer dogged her some little distance behind. Either his whole theory is incorrect, I thought to myself, or else he will be led now to the heart of the mystery. There was no need for him to ask me to wait up for him, for I felt that sleep was impossible until I heard the result of his adventure. It was close upon nine when he set out. I had no idea how long he might be, but... I sat stolidly puffing at my pipe and skipping over the pages of Henri Merger's Vie de Bohème. Ten o'clock passed, and I heard the footsteps of the maid as they pattered off to bed. Eleven, and the more stately tread of the landlady passed by door, bound for the same destination. It was close upon twelve before I heard the sharp sound of his latch-key the instant he entered i saw by his face that he had not been successful amusement and chagrin seemed to be struggling for the mastery until the former suddenly carried the day and he burst into a hearty laugh ha ha i wouldn't have the scotland yarders know it for the world he cried dropping into his chair i have chaffed them so much that they would never let me hear the end of it I can afford to laugh because I know that I will be even with them in the long run." "'What is it, then?' I asked. "'Oh, I don't mind telling a story against myself. That creature had gone a little way when she began to limp and show every sign of being foot-sore. Presently she came to a halt and hailed a four-wheeler which was passing. I managed to be close to her so as to hear the address but I need not have been so anxious, for she sang it out loud enough to be heard at the other side of the street. "'Drive to Thirteen Duncan Street Houndsditch, she cried. This begins to look genuine, I thought, and having seen her safely inside, I perched myself behind. "'That's an art which every detective should be an expert at. Well, away we rattled.' and never drew rein until we reached the street in question. I hopped off before we came to the door, and strolled down the street in an easy lounging way. I saw the cab pull up. The driver jumped down, and I saw him open the door and stand expectantly. Nothing came out, though. When I reached him, He was groping about frantically in the empty cab and giving vent to the finest assorted collection of oaths that ever I listened to. There was no sign or trace of his passenger, and I fear it will be some time before he gets his fare. On inquiring at number 13 we found that the house belonged to a respectable paper-hanger named Keswick and that no one of the name either of sawyer or dennis had ever been heard of there you don't mean to say i cried in amazement that that tottering feeble old woman was able to get out of the cab while it was in motion without either you or the driver seeing her old woman be damned said sherlock holmes sharply we were the old women to be so taken in it must have been a young man and an active one too besides being an incomparable actor that get-up was inimitable he saw that he was followed no doubt and used this means of giving me the slip it shows that the man we are after is not as lonely as i imagined he was but has friends who are ready to risk something for him now doctor you are looking done up take my advice and turn in. I was certainly feeling very weary, so I obeyed his injunction. I left Holmes seated in front of the smoldering fire, and long into the watches of the night I heard the low, melancholy wailings of his violin, and knew that he was still pondering over the strange problem which he had set himself to unravel. CHAPTER Six. Tobias Gregson shows what he can do. The papers next day were full of the Brixton mystery, as they termed it. Each had a long account of the affair, and some had leaders upon it in addition. There was some information in them which was new to me. I still retained in my scrapbook numerous clippings and extracts bearing upon the case. Here is a condensation of a few of them. The Daily Telegraph remarked that in the history of crime there had seldom been a tragedy which presented stranger features. The German name of the victim, the absence of all other motive, and the sinister inscription on the wall all pointed to its perpetration by political refugees and revolutionists. The socialists had many branches in America, and the deceased had, no doubt, infringed their unwritten laws and been tracked down by them. After alluding airily to the Weimgericht, Aquatofara Carbonari, the Marchioness de Brinvilliers, the Darwinian theory, the Principles of Malthus, and the Ratcliffe Highway murders, the article concluded by admonishing the government and advocating a closer watch over foreigners in England. The Standard commented upon the fact that lawless outrages of the sort usually occurred under a liberal administration. They arose from the unsettling of the minds of the masses, and the consequent weakening of all authority. The deceased was an American gentleman who had been residing for some weeks in the metropolis. He had stayed at the boarding-house of Madame Charpentier in Torquay Terrace, Camberwell. He was accompanied in his travels by his private secretary, Mr. Joseph Stangerson the two bade adieu to their landlady upon tuesday the fourth and departed to euston station with the avowed intention of catching the liverpool express they were afterwards seen together upon the platform nothing more is known of them until mr drebber's body was as recorded discovered in an empty house in the brixton road many miles from euston how he came there and how he met his fate are questions which are still involved in mystery nothing is known of the whereabouts of stangerson we are glad to learn that mr lestrade and mr gregson of scotland yard are both engaged upon the case and it is confidently anticipated that these well-known officers will speedily throw light upon the matter the daily news observed that there was no doubt as to the crime being a political one. The despotism and hatred of liberalism which animated the continental governments had had the effect of driving to our shores a number of men who might have made excellent citizens were they not soured by the recollection of all that they had undergone. Among these men there was a stringent code of honor, any infringement of which was punished by death. Every effort should be made to find the secretary, Stangerson, and to ascertain some particulars of the habits of the deceased. A great step had been gained by the discovery of the address of the house at which he had boarded. a result which was entirely due to the acuteness and energy of Mr. Gregson of Scotland Yard. Sherlock Holmes and I read these notices over together at breakfast, and they appeared to afford him considerable amusement. I told you that whatever happened, Lestrade and Gregson would be sure to score. That depends on how it turns out. Oh, bless you, it doesn't matter in the least. If the man is caught, it will be on account of their exertions. If he escapes, it will be in spite of their exertions. Its heads I win, tails you lose. Whatever they do, they will have followers.' and so trouve toujours en plus ce qui l'admire." "'What on earth is this?' I cried, for at this moment there came the pattering of many steps in the hall and on the stairs, accompanied by audible expressions of disgust upon the part of our landlady. "'It's the Baker Street Division of the Detective Police Force,' said my companion gravely, and as he spoke. There rushed into the room half a dozen of the dirtiest and most ragged street Arabs that ever I clapped eyes on. "'Tension!' cried Holmes in a sharp tone, and the six dirty little scoundrels stood in a line like so many disreputable statuettes. "'In future you shall send up Wiggins alone to report, and the rest of you must wait in the street. "'Have you found it, Wiggins?' "'No, sir, we ain't.' said one of the youths i hardly expected you would you must keep on until you do here are your wages he handed each of them a shilling. now off you go and come back with a better report next time he waved his hand and they scampered away downstairs like so many rats and we heard their shrill voices next moment in the street "'There's more work to be got out of one of those little beggars than out of a dozen of the force,' Holmes remarked. "'The mere sight of an official-looking person seals men's lips. These youngsters, however, go everywhere and hear everything. They are as sharp as needles, too. All they want is organization.' "'Is it on this Brixton case that you are employing them?' I asked. "'Yes.' There is a point which I wish to ascertain. It is merely a matter of time. Hello. We are going to hear some news now, with a vengeance. Here is Gregson coming down the road with Beatitude written upon every feature of his face. bound for us, I know. Yes, he is stopping. There he is. There was a violent peal at the bell, and in a few seconds... The fair-haired detective came up the stairs, three steps at a time, and burst into our sitting-room. "'My dear fellow,' he cried, wringing Holmes' unresponsive hand, "'congratulate me! I have made the whole thing as clear as day!' A shade of anxiety seemed to me to cross my companion's expressive face. "'Do you mean that you are on the right track?' he asked. "'The right track?' Why, sir, we have the man under lock and key. And his name is? Arthur Charpentier, sub-lieutenant in Her Majesty's Navy, cried Gregson pompously, rubbing his fat hands and inflating his chest. Sherlock Holmes gave a sigh of relief and relaxed into a smile. Take a seat and try one of these cigars, he said. We are anxious to know how you managed it. "'Will you have some whiskey and water?' "'I don't mind if I do,' the detective answered. "'The tremendous exertions which I have gone through during the last day or two have worn me out. Not so much bodily exertion, you understand, as the strain upon the mind. You will appreciate that, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, for we are both brain-workers.' "'You do me too much honor,' said Holmes gravely. Let us hear how you arrived at this most gratifying result. The detective seated himself in the armchair and puffed complacently at his cigar. Then, suddenly, he slapped his thigh in a paroxysm of amusement. The fun of it is, he cried, that that fool Lestrade, who thinks himself so smart, has gone off upon the wrong track altogether. He is after the secretary, Stangerson who had no more to do with the crime than the babe unborn. I have no doubt that he has caught him by this time. The idea tickled Gregson so much that he laughed until he choked. And how did you get your clue? Oh, I'll tell you all about it. Of course, Dr. Watson, this is strictly between ourselves. The first difficulty which we had to contend with, was the finding of this American's antecedents. Some people would have waited until their advertisements were answered, or until parties came forward and volunteered information. That is not Tobias Gregson's way of going to work. You remember the hat beside the dead man? Yes, said Holmes, by John Underwood and Sons, 129 Camberwell Road. Gregson looked quite crestfallen. "'I had no idea you noticed that,' he said. "'Have you been there?' "'No.' "'Ah!' cried Gregson in a relieved voice. "'You should never neglect a chance, however small it may seem.' "'To a great mind nothing is little,' remarked Holmes sententiously. "'Well, I went to Underwood and asked him if he had sold a hat of that size and description.' he looked over his books and came on it at once he had sent the hat to a mr drebber residing at charpentier's boarding-establishment torquay terrace thus i got his address smart very smart murmured sherlock holmes i next called upon madame charpentier continued the detective i found her very pale and distressed her daughter was in the room too An uncommonly fine girl she is, too. She was looking red about the eyes, and her lips trembled as I spoke to her. That didn't escape my notice. I began to smell a rat. You know the feeling, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, when you come upon the right scent, a kind of thrill in your nerves. "'Have you heard of the mysterious death of your late boarder, Mr. Enoch J. Drebber, of Cleveland?' I asked. The mother nodded. She didn't seem able to get out a word. The daughter burst into tears. I felt more than ever that these people knew something of the matter. "'At what o'clock did Mr. Drebber leave your house for the train?' I asked. "'At eight o'clock,' she said. Gulping in her throat to keep down her agitation, his secretary, Mr. Stangerson, said that there were two trains, one at nine fifteen and one at eleven. He was to catch the first. And was that the last which you saw of him? A terrible change came over the woman's face as I asked the question. Her features turned perfectly livid. It was some seconds before she could get out the single word yes and when it did come it was in a husky, unnatural tone. There was silence for a moment, and then the daughter spoke in a calm, clear voice.
0: "'No
1: good can ever come of falsehood, mother,' she said. "'Let us be frank with this gentleman. We did see Mr. Drebber again.' "'God forgive you,' cried Madame Chapantier, throwing up her hands and sinking back in her chair you have murdered your brother.' "'Arthur would rather that we spoke the truth,' the girl answered firmly. "'You had best tell me all about it now,' I said. "'Half confidences are worse than none. Besides, you do not know how much we know of it.' "'On your head be it, Alice,' cried her mother, and then, turning to me, "'I will tell you all, sir.' Do not imagine that my agitation on behalf of my son arises from any fear, lest he should have had at hand in this terrible affair. He is utterly innocent of it. My dread is, however, that in your eyes and in the eyes of others he may appear to be compromised. That, however, is surely impossible. His high character, his profession, his antecedents, would all forbid it. "'The best way is to make a clean breast of the facts,' I answered. "'Depend upon it. If your son is innocent, he will be none the worse.' "'Perhaps, Alice, you had better leave us together,' she said, and her daughter withdrew. "'Now, sir,' she continued, "'I had no intention of telling you all this, but since my poor daughter has disclosed it, I have no alternative. Having once decided to speak,' I will tell you all, without omitting any particular. It is your wisest course," said I. Mr. Drebber has been with us nearly three weeks. He and his secretary, Mr. Stangerson, had been travelling on the continent. I noticed a Copenhagen label upon each of their trunks, showing that that had been their last stopping-place. Stangerson was a quiet, reserved man, but his employer... I am sorry to say, was far otherwise. He was coarse in his habits and brutish in his ways. The very night of his arrival he became very much the worse for drink, and indeed, after twelve o'clock in the day, he could hardly ever be said to be sober. His manners towards the maidservants were disgustingly free and familiar. Worst of all, He speedily assumed the same attitude towards my daughter, Alice, and spoke to her more than once in a way which, fortunately, she is too innocent to understand. On one occasion he actually seized her in his arms and embraced her, an outrage which caused his own secretary to reproach him for his unmanly conduct. "'But why did you stand all this?' I asked. I suppose that you can get rid of your boarders when you wish. Mrs. Charpentier blushed at my pertinent question. Would to God that I had given him notice on the very day that he came, she said, but it was a sore temptation. They were paying a pound a day each, fourteen pounds a week, and this is the slack season. I am a widow." and my boy in the Navy has cost me much. I grudged to lose the money. I acted for the best. This last was too much, however, and I gave him notice to leave on account of it. That was the reason of his going. Well? My heart grew light when I saw him drive away. My son is on leave just now, but I did not tell him anything of all this, "'for his temper is violent, and he is passionately fond of his sister. "'When I closed the door behind him, a load seemed to be lifted from my mind. "'Alas! in less than an hour there was a ring at the bell, "'and I learned that Mr. Drebber had returned. "'He was much excited, and evidently the worse for drink. "'He forced his way into the room where I was sitting with my daughter, and made some incoherent remark about having missed his train. He then turned to Alice, and before my very face proposed to her that she should fly with him. "'You are of age,' he said, "'and there is no law to stop you. I have money enough and to spare. Never mind the old girl here, but come along with me now, straight away. You shall live like a princess.' Poor Alice was so frightened that she shrunk away from him, but he caught her by the wrist and endeavoured to draw her towards the door. I screamed, and at that moment my son Arthur came into the room. What happened then I do not know. I heard oaths and confused sounds of a scuffle. I was too terrified to raise my head. When I did look up, I saw Arthur standing in the doorway, laughing, with a stick in his hand. I don't think that fine fellow will trouble us again," he said. I will just go after him and see what he does with himself. With these words he took off his hat and started off down the street. The next morning we heard of Mr. Drebber's mysterious death. This statement came from Mrs. Charpentier's lips with many gasps and pauses. At times she spoke so low that I could hardly catch the words. I made shorthand notes of all that she said, however, so that there should be no possibility of a mistake. "'It's quite exciting,' said Sherlock Holmes with a yawn. "'What happened next?' "'When Mrs. Charpentier paused,' the detective continued, "'I saw that the whole case hung upon one point.' Fixing her with my eye, in a way which I always found effective with women, I asked her at what hour her son returned. "'I don't know,' she answered. "'Not know?' "'No. He has a latch-key, and he let himself in.' "'After you went to bed?' "'Yes.' "'When did you go to bed?' "'About eleven. So your son was gone at least two hours. Yes, possibly four or five. Yes. What was he doing during that time? I do not know, she answered, turning white to her very lips. Of course, after that there was nothing more to be done. I found out where Lieutenant Charpentier was, took two officers with me, and arrested him when I touched him on the shoulder and warned him to come quietly with us, he answered us as bold as brass. I suppose you are arresting me for my being concerned in the death of that scoundrel Drebber, he said. We had said nothing to him about it, so that his alluding to it had a most suspicious aspect. Very, said Holmes. He still carried the heavy stick which the mother described him as having with him when he followed Drebber. It was a stout oak cudgel. What is your theory, then? Well, my theory is that he followed Drebber as far as the Brixton Road, when there a fresh altercation arose between them, in the course of which Drebber received a blow from the stick in the pit of the stomach, perhaps, which killed him without leaving any mark. The night was so wet that no one was about, so Charpentier dragged the body of his victim into the empty house. As to the candle and the blood and the writing on the wall and the ring, they may all be so many tricks to throw the police onto the wrong scent. "'Well done!' said Holmes in an encouraging voice. Really, Gregson, you are getting along. We shall make something of you yet. I flatter myself that I managed it rather neatly, the detective said proudly. The young man volunteered a statement in which he said that after following Drebber some time the latter perceived him and took a cab in order to get away from him. On his way home he met an old shipmate and took a long walk with him. On being asked where this old shipmate lived, he was unable to give any satisfactory reply. I think the whole case fits together uncommonly well. What amuses me is to think of Lestrade, who had started off upon the wrong scent. I'm afraid he won't make much of... Why, by Jove, here's the very man himself! It was indeed Lestrade who had ascended the stairs while we were talking, and who now entered the room. The assurance and jauntiness which generally marked his demeanour and dress were, however, wanting. His face was disturbed and troubled, while his clothes were disarranged and untidy. He had evidently come with the intention of consulting with Sherlock Holmes, for on perceiving his colleague he appeared to be embarrassed and put out. He stood in the center of the room, fumbling nervously with his hat, and uncertain what to do. "'This is a most extraordinary case,' he said at last. "'A most incomprehensible affair.' "'Ah, you find it so, Mr. Lestrade,' cried Gregson triumphantly. "'I thought you would come to that conclusion. "'Have you managed to find the secretary, Mr. Joseph Stangerson?' "'The secretary?' Mr. Joseph Stangerson said Lestrade gravely, "Was murdered at Halliday's private hotel about six o'clock this morning." Chapter Seven, Light in the Darkness. The intelligence with which Lestrade greeted us was so momentous and so unexpected that we were all three fairly dumbfounded. Gregson sprang out of his chair and upset the remainder of his whiskey and water. I stared in silence at Sherlock Holmes, whose lips were compressed and his brows drawn down over his eyes. "'Stangerson, too?' he muttered. "'The plot thickens.' "'It was quite thick enough before,' grumbled Lestrade, taking a chair. "'I seem to have dropped into a sort of council of war.' "'Are you—are you sure of this piece of intelligence?' stammered Gregson. I have just come from his room, said Lestrade. I was the first to discover what had occurred. We have been hearing Gregson's view of the matter, Holmes observed. Would you mind letting us know what you have seen and done? I have no objection, Lestrade answered, seating himself. I freely confess that I was of the opinion that Stangerson was concerned in the death of Drebber, this fresh development has shown me that I was completely mistaken. Full of the one idea I set myself to find out what had become of the secretary. They had been seen together at Euston Station about half-past eight on the evening of the third. At two in the morning Drebber had been found in the Brixton Road. The question which confronted me was to find out how Stangerson had been employed between eight-thirty and the time of the crime, and what became of him afterwards. I telegraphed to Liverpool, giving a description of the man, and warning them to keep a watch upon the American boats. I then set to work, calling upon all the hotels and lodging-houses in the vicinity of Euston. You see, I argued that if Drebber and his companion had become separated, The natural course for the latter would be to put up somewhere in the vicinity for the night, and then to hang about the station again next morning. "'They would be likely to agree on some meeting-place beforehand,' remarked Holmes. So it proved. I spent the whole of yesterday evening in making inquiries entirely without avail. This morning I began very early and at eight o'clock I reached Halliday's private hotel in Little George Street. On my inquiry as to whether a Mr. Stangerson was living there, they at once answered me in the affirmative. "'No doubt you want the gentleman whom he was expecting,' they said. "'He has been waiting for a gentleman for two days.' "'Where is he now?' I asked. "'He is upstairs in bed. He wished to be called at nine. "'I will go up and see him at once,' I said. "'It seemed to me that my sudden appearance might shake his nerves "'and lead him to say something unguarded. "'The Boots volunteered to show me the room. "'It was on the second floor, and there was a small corridor leading up to it. "'The Boots pointed out the door to me, and was about to go downstairs again, "'when I saw something that made me feel sickish in spite of my twenty years experience from under the door there curled a little red ribbon of blood which had meandered across the passage and formed a little pool along the skirting at the other side i gave a cry which brought the boots back he nearly fainted when he saw it the door was locked on the inside but we put our shoulders to it and knocked it in and the window of the room was open, and beside the window, all huddled up, lay the body of a man in his nightdress. He was quite dead, and had been for some time, for his limbs were rigid and cold. When we turned him over, the boots recognized him at once as being the same gentleman who had engaged the room under the name of Joseph Stangerson. The cause of death was a deep stab in the left side, which must have penetrated the heart. And now comes the strangest part of the affair. What, do you suppose, was above the murdered man? I felt a creeping of the flesh and a presentiment of coming horror, even before Sherlock Holmes answered. The word Rache, written in letters of blood, he said. That was it! said Lestrade in an awestruck voice, and we were all silent for a while. There was something so methodical and so incomprehensible about the deeds of this unknown assassin that it imparted a fresh ghastliness to his crimes. My nerves, which were steady enough on the field of battle, tingled as I thought of it. The man was seen, continued Lestrade, a milk boy passing on his way to the dairy happened to walk down the lane which leads from the mews at the back of the hotel he noticed that a ladder which usually lay there was raised against one of the windows of the second floor which was wide open after passing he looked back and saw a man descend the ladder he came down so quietly and openly that the boy imagined him to be some carpenter or joiner at work at the hotel he took no particular notice of him beyond thinking in his own mind that it was early for him to be at work he has an impression that the man was tall had a reddish face and was dressed in a long brownish coat he must have stayed in the room some little time after the murder for we found blood-stained water in the basin where he had washed his hands and marks on the sheets where he had deliberately wiped his knife. I glanced at Holmes on hearing the description of the murderer, which tallied so exactly with his own. There was, however, no trace of exultation or satisfaction upon his face. "'Did you find nothing in the room which could furnish a clue to the murderer?' he asked. "'Nothing. Stangerson had Drebber's purse in his pocket, but it seems that this was usual, as he did all the paying. There was eighty odd pounds in it, but nothing had been taken. Whatever the motives of these extraordinary crimes, robbery is certainly not one of them. There were no papers or memoranda in the murdered man's pocket, except a single telegram, dated from Cleveland about a month ago, and containing the words, J.H. is in Europe. There was no name appended to this message. And there was nothing else. Holmes asked. Nothing of any importance. The man's novel, with which he had read himself to sleep, was lying upon the bed, and his pipe was on a chair beside him. There was a glass of water on the table, and on the window sill, a small chip ointment box containing a couple of pills. Sherlock Holmes sprang from his chair with an exclamation of delight. "'The last link!' he cried exultantly my case is complete the two detectives stared at him in amazement i have now in my hands my companion said confidently all the threads which have formed such a tangle there are of course details to be filled in but i am as certain of all the main facts from the time that drebber parted from stangerson at the station up to the discovery of the body of the latter as if I had seen them with my own eyes. I will give you proof of my knowledge. Could you lay your hand upon those pills? I have them, said Lestrade, producing a small white box. I took them and the purse and the telegram, intending to have them put in a place of safety at the police station. It was the merest chance, my taking these pills, for I am bound to say that I do not attach any importance to them. "'Give them here,' said Holmes. "'Now, doctor,' turning to me, "'are those ordinary pills?' "'They certainly were not. "'They were of the pearly-gray color, "'small, round, and almost transparent against the light.' "'From their lightness and transparency "'I should imagine that they are soluble in water,' I remarked. "'Precisely so,' answered Holmes. "'Now!' Would you mind going down and fetching that poor little devil of a terrier which has been bad so long, and which the landlady wanted you to put out of its pain yesterday? I went downstairs and carried the dog upstairs in my arms. Its labored breathing and glazing eye showed that it was not far from its end. Indeed, its snow-white muzzle proclaimed that it had already exceeded the usual term of canine existence. I placed it upon a cushion on the rug. I will now cut one of these pills in two, said Holmes, and drawing his penknife he suited the action to the word. One half we return into the box for future purposes. The other half I will place in this wine-glass, in which is a teaspoonful of water. You perceive that our friend, the doctor, is right, and that it readily dissolves this may be very interesting in the injured tone of one who suspects that he is being laughed at i cannot see however what it has to do with the death of mr joseph stangerson patience my friend patience you will find in time that it has everything to do with it i shall now add a little milk to make the mixture palatable and on presenting it to the dog We find that he laps it up readily enough. As he spoke, he turned the contents of the wine-glass into a saucer and placed it in front of the terrier, who speedily licked it dry. Sherlock Holmes' earnest demeanour had so far convinced us that we all sat in silence watching the animal intently and expecting some startling effect. None such appeared, however. The dog continued to lie stretched upon the cushion breathing in a labored way, but apparently neither the better nor the worse for its draft. Holmes had taken out his watch, and as minute followed minute without result, an expression of the utmost chagrin and disappointment appeared upon his features. He gnawed his lip, drummed his fingers upon the table, and showed every other symptom of acute impatience. So great was his emotion that I felt sincerely sorry for him, while the two detectives smiled derisively, by no means displeased at this check which he had met. "'It can't be a coincidence!' he cried, at last springing from his chair and pacing wildly up and down the room. It is impossible that it should be a mere coincidence. The very pills which I suspected in the case of Drubber are actually found after the death of Stangerson, "'And yet they are inert. "'What can it mean?' "'Surely my whole chain of reasoning cannot have been false. "'It is impossible. "'And yet this wretched dog is none the worse.' "'Ah! I have it! I have it!' "'With a perfect shriek of delight he rushed to the box, "'cut the other pill in two, dissolved it, added milk, and presented it to the terrier. The unfortunate creature's tongue seemed hardly to have been moistened in it, before it gave a convulsive shiver in every limb, and lay as rigid and lifeless as if it had been struck by lightning. Sherlock Holmes drew a long breath and wiped the perspiration from his forehead. "'I should have more faith,' he said. I ought to know by this time that when a fact appears to be opposed to a long train of deductions it invariably proves to be capable of bearing some other interpretation. Of the two pills in that box one was of the most deadly poison, and the other was entirely harmless. I ought to have known that before ever I saw the box at all. The last statement appeared to me to be so startling. That I could hardly believe that he was in his sober senses. There was the dead dog, however, to prove that his conjecture had been correct. It seemed to me that the mists in my own mind were gradually clearing away, and I began to have a dim, vague perception of the truth. "'All this seems strange to you,' continued Holmes, "'because you failed at the beginning of the inquiry to grasp the importance of the single real clue which was presented to you i had the good fortune to seize upon that and everything which has occurred since then has served to confirm my original supposition and indeed was the logical sequence of it hence things which perplexed you and made the case more obscure have served to enlighten me and to strengthen my conclusions It is a mistake to confound strangeness with mystery. The most commonplace crime is often the most mysterious because it presents no new or special features from which deductions may be drawn. This murder would have been infinitely more difficult to unravel had the body of the victim been simply found lying in the roadway without any of those outré or sensational accompaniments which have rendered it remarkable these strange details far from making the case more difficult have really had the effect of making it less so mr gregson who had listened to this address with considerable impatience could contain himself no longer look here mr sherlock holmes he said we are all ready to acknowledge that you are a smart man and that you have your own methods of working We want something more than mere theory and preaching now, though. It is a case of taking the man. I have made my case out, and it seems I was wrong. Young Charpentier could not have been engaged in this second affair. Mestrade went after his man, Stangerson, and it appears that he was wrong too. You have thrown out hints here and hints there, and seem to know more than we do." "'But the time has come when we feel that we have a right to ask you, "'Straight, how much you do know of the business. "'Can you name the man who did it?' "'I cannot help feeling that Gregson is right, sir,' remarked Lestrade. "'We have both tried and we have both failed. "'You have remarked more than once, since I have been in the room, "'that you had all the evidence which you require. "'Surely you will not withhold it any longer.' any delay in arresting the assassin i observed might give him time to perpetuate some fresh atrocity thus pressed by us all holmes showed signs of irresolution he continued to walk up and down the room with his head sunk on his chest and his brows drawn down as was his habit when lost in thought there will be no more murders he said at last stopping abruptly and facing us you can put that consideration out of the question. You have asked me if I know the name of the assassin. I do. The mere knowing of his name is a small thing, however, compared with the power of laying our hands upon him. This I expect very shortly to do. I have good hopes of managing it through my own arrangements, but it is a thing which needs delicate handling for we have a shrewd and desperate man to deal with, who is supported, as I have had occasion to prove, by another who is as clever as himself. As long as this man has no idea that any one can have a clue, there is some chance of securing him, but if he had the slightest suspicion, he would change his name and vanish in an instant among the four million inhabitants of this great city without meaning to hurt either of your feelings, I am bound to say that I consider these men to be more than a match for the official force, and that is why I have not asked your assistance. If I fail, I shall, of course, incur all the blame due to this omission. But that I am prepared for. At present I am ready to promise that the instant that I can communicate with you without endangering my own combinations, I shall do so. Gregson and Lestrade seemed to be far from satisfied by this assurance, or by the deprecating allusion to the detective police. The former had flushed up to the roots of his flaxen hair, while the other's beady eyes glistened with curiosity and resentment. Neither of them had time to speak, however, before there was a tap at the door, and the spokesman of the street Arabs, young Wiggins, introduced his insignificant and unsavory person. "'Please, sir,' he said, touching his forelock. "'I have a cap downstairs.' "'Good boy,' said Holmes blandly. "'Why don't you introduce this pattern at Scotland Yard?' he continued, taking a pair of steel handcuffs from a drawer. See how beautifully the spring works. They fasten in an instant. The old pattern is good enough, remarked Lestrade, if we can only find a man to put them on. Very good, very good, said Holmes, smiling. The cabman may as well help me with my boxes. Just ask him to step up, Wiggins. I was surprised to find my companion speaking as though he were about to set out on a journey, since he had not said anything to me about it there was a small portmanteau in the room and this he pulled out and began to strap he was busily engaged at it when the cabman entered the room just give me a help with this buckle cabman he said kneeling over his task and never turning his head the fellow came forward with a somewhat sullen defiant air and put down his hands to assist at that instant there was a sharp click the jangling of metal and Sherlock Holmes sprang to his feet again. "'Gentlemen,' he cried with flashing eyes, "'let me introduce you to Mr. Jefferson Hope, the murderer of Enoch Drebber and of Joseph Stangerson. The whole thing occurred in a moment, so quickly that I had no time to realize it. I have a vivid recollection of that instant, of Holmes' triumphant expression and the ring of his voice. Of the cabman's dazed savage face as he glared at the glittering handcuffs which had appeared as if magic upon his wrists for a second or two we might have been a group of statues then with an inarticulate roar of fury the prisoner wrenched himself free from holmes grasp and hurled himself through the window woodwork and glass gave way before him but before he got quite through Gregson, Lestrade and Holmes sprang upon him like so many staghounds. He was dragged back into the room and then commenced a terrific conflict. So powerful and so fierce was he that the four of us were shaken off again and again. He appeared to have the convulsive strength of a man in an epileptic fit. His face and hands were terribly mangled by his passage through the glass but loss of blood had no effect in diminishing his resistance. It was not until Lestrade succeeded in getting his hand inside his neckcloth and half-strangling him that we made him realize that his struggles were of no avail. And even then we felt no security until we had pinioned his feet as well as his hands. That done, we rose to our feet, breathless and panting. "'We have his cab?' said Sherlock Holmes, it will serve to take him to Scotland Yard. And now, gentlemen, he continued with a pleasant smile, we have reached the end of our little mystery. You are very welcome to put any questions that you like to me now, and there is no danger that I will refuse to answer them.
0: End of part one. A study
1: in scarlet by Arthur Conan Doyle. Part two The Country of the Saints. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Neufeld. Chapter I On the Great Alkali Plain. In the central portion of the great North American continent there lies an arid and repulsive desert which for many a long year served as a barrier against the advance of civilization from the sierra nevada to nebraska and from the yellowstone river in the north to the colorado upon the south is a region of desolation and silence nor is nature always in one mood throughout this grim district it comprises snow-capped and lofty mountains and dark and gloomy valleys There are swift-flowing rivers which dash through jagged canyons, and there are enormous plains, which in winter are white with snow, and in summer are grey with the saline-alkali dust. They all preserve, however, the common characteristics of barrenness, inhospitality, and misery. There are no inhabitants of this land of despair a band of pawnees or of blackfeet may occasionally traverse it in order to reach other hunting-grounds but the hardiest of the braves are glad to lose sight of these awesome plains and to find themselves once more upon their prairies the coyote skulks among the scrub the buzzard flaps heavily through the air and the clumsy grizzly bear lumbers through the dark ravines and picks up such sustenance as it can amongst the rocks these are the sole dwellers in the wilderness in the whole world there can be no more dreary view than that from the northern slope of the sierra blanco as far as the eye can reach stretches the great flat plainland all dusted over with patches of alkali and intersected by clumps of the dwarfish chaparral bushes on the extreme verge of the horizon lie a long chain of mountain peaks with their rugged summits flecked with snow In this great stretch of country there is no sign of life, nor of anything appertaining to life. There is no bird in the steel-blue heavens, no movement upon the dull grey earth. Above all, there is absolute silence. Listen as one may, there is no shadow of a sound in all that mighty wilderness, nothing but silence, complete and heart-subduing silence. It has been said that there is nothing appertaining to life upon the broad plain. That is hardly true. Looking down from the Sierra Blanco, one sees a pathway traced out across the deserts, which winds away and is lost in the extreme distance. It is rutted with wheels, and trodden down by the feet of many adventurers. Here and there there are scattered white objects which glisten in the sun, and stand out against the dull deposit of alkali. Approach and examine them. They are bones, some large and coarse, others smaller and more delicate. The former have belonged to oxen, and the latter to men. For fifteen hundred miles one may trace this ghastly caravan route by these scattered remains of those who had fallen by the wayside. Looking down on this very scene, there stood upon the fourth of May, eighteen hundred and forty-seven, a solitary traveler. His appearance was such that he might have been the very genius or demon of the region. An observer would have found it difficult to say whether he was nearer to forty or to sixty. His face was lean and haggard, and the brown parchment-like skin was drawn tightly over the projecting bones. His long brown hair and beard were all flecked and dashed with white. His eyes were sunken in his head and burned with an unnatural luster, while the hand which grasped his rifle was hardly more fleshy than that of a skeleton. As he stood he leaned upon his weapon for support and yet his tall figure and the massive framework of his bones suggested a wiry and vigorous constitution. His gaunt face, however, and his clothes, which hung so baggily over his shriveled limbs, proclaimed what it was that gave him that senile and decrepit appearance. The man was dying, dying from hunger and from thirst. He had toiled painfully down the ravine and on to this little elevation, in the vain hope of seeing some signs of water. Now the great salt plain stretched before his eyes, and the distant belt of savage mountains, without a sign anywhere of plant or tree, which might indicate the presence of moisture. In all that broad landscape there was no gleam of hope. North and east and west he looked with wild questioning eyes and then he realized that his wanderings had come to an end, and that there, on that barren crag, he was about to die. "Uh, "'Why not here, as well as in a feather-bed twenty years hence?' he muttered, as he seated himself in the shelter of a boulder. Before sitting down he had deposited upon the ground his useless rifle, and also a large bundle tied up in a grey shawl, which he had carried, slung over his right shoulder. It appeared to be somewhat too heavy for his strength, for in lowering it it came down on the ground with some little violence. Instantly there broke with the gray parcel a little moaning cry, and from it there protruded a small scared face with very bright brown eyes and two little speckled dimpled fists. "'You've hurt me!' said a childish voice reproachfully. "'Have I, though?' the man answered penitently. "'I didn't go for to do it.' As he spoke, he unwrapped the grey shawl and extricated a pretty little girl of about five years of age, whose dainty shoes and smart pink frock with its little linen apron all bespoke of mother's care. The child was pale and wan, but her healthy arms and legs showed that she had suffered less than her companion. "'How is it now?' he answered anxiously, for she was still rubbing the towsy golden curls which covered the back of her head. "'Kiss it and make it well,' she said with perfect gravity, shoving the injured part up to him. "'That's what mother used to do.' "'Where's mother?' "'Mother's gone. I guess you'll see her before long.' "'Gone, huh?' said the little girl. "'Funny. She didn't say good-bye. She most always did if she was just going over to Auntie's for tea, and now she's been away three days.' "'Say, it's awful dry, ain't it? Ain't there no water, no nothing to eat?' "'No, there ain't nothing, dearie. You'll just need to be patient a while, and then you'll be all right. Put your head up agin me like that, and then you'll feel bullier. It ain't easy to talk when your lips is like leather, but I guess I'd best let you know how the cards lie. "'What's that you got?' "'Pretty things. Fine things.' cried the little girl enthusiastically, holding up two glittering fragments of mica. When we goes back to home, I'll give them to brother Bob. You'll see prettier things than them soon, said the man confidently. You just wait a bit. I was going to tell you, though, you remember when we left the river? Oh, yes. Well, we reckoned we'd strike another river soon, d'ye see. "'But there was something wrong, compasses or map or something, and it didn't turn up. Water ran out, just except a little drop for the likes of you, and—and—and you couldn't wash yourself,' interrupted his companion gravely, staring up at his grimy visage. "'No, nor drink. And Mr. Bender, he was the first to go. And that Indian Pete. "'and then Mrs. McGregor, and then Johnny Hounds, and—and, dearie, your mother.' "'Then mother's a debtor, too,' cried the little girl, dropping her face in her pinafore and sobbing bitterly. "'Yes, they all went, except you and me. "'Then I thought there was some chance of water in this direction, "'so I heaved you over my shoulder, and we tramped it together.' "'It don't seem as though we've improved matters. "'There's an almighty small chance for us now.' "'Do you mean that we are going to die, too?' asked the child, checking her sobs and raising her tear-stained face. "'I guess that's about the size of it.' "'Why didn't you say so before?' she said, laughing gleefully. "'You gave me such a fright.' "'Why, of course! "'Now, as long as we die, "'we'll be with Mother again.' "'Yes, you will, dearie. "'And you, too. "'I'll tell her how awful good you've been. "'I'll bet she meets us at the door of heaven "'with a big pitcher of water "'and a lot of buckwheat cakes, "'hot and toasted on both sides, "'like Bob and me was fond of. "'How long will it be, first? I don't know. Not very long. The man's eyes were fixed upon the northern horizon. In the blue vault of the heaven there had appeared three little specks which increased in size every moment, so rapidly did they approach. They speedily resolved themselves into three large brown birds which circled over the heads of the two wanderers, and then settled upon some rocks which overlooked them they were buzzards the vultures of the west whose coming is the forerunner of death cocks and hens cried the little girl gleefully pointing at their ill-omened forms and clapping her hands to make them rise say did god make this country of course he did said her companion rather startled by this unexpected question he made the country down in illinois and he made the missouri the little girl continued. "'I guess somebody else made the country in these parts. It's not nearly so well done. They forgot the water and the trees.' "'What would you think of offering up prayer?' the man asked diffidently. "'It ain't night yet,' she answered. "'It don't matter. It ain't quite regular, but he won't mind that, you bet.' You say over them ones that you used to say every night in the wagon when we was on the plains, why don't you say some yourself? The child asked with wondering eyes. Oh, I disremember them. He answered. I ain't said none since I was half the height of that gun. I guess it's never too late. You say them out, and I'll stand by and come in on the courses. Then you'll need to kneel down, and me too, she said laying the shawl out for that purpose you've got to put your hands up like this it makes you feel kind of good it was a strange sight had there been anything but the buzzards to see it side by side on the narrow shawl knelt the two wanderers the little prattling child and the reckless hardened adventurer her chubby face and his haggard angular visage were both turned up to the cloudless heaven in heartfelt entreaty to that dread being with whom they were face to face, while the two voices, one thin and clear, the other deep and harsh, united in the entreaty for mercy and forgiveness. The prayer finished, they resumed their seat in the shadow of the boulder until the child fell asleep, nestling upon the broad breast of her protector. He watched over her slumber for some time, but nature proved to be too strong for him. For three days and three nights he had allowed himself neither rest nor repose. Slowly the eyelids drooped over the tired eyes, and the head sunk lower and lower upon the breast, until the man's grizzled beard was mixed with the gold tresses of his companion, and both slept the same deep and dreamless slumber. Had the wanderer remained awake for another half-hour, a strange sight would have met his eyes. Far away, on the extreme verge of the alkali plain, there rose up a little spray of dust, very slight at first and hardly to be distinguished from the mists of the distance, but gradually growing higher and broader until it formed a solid, well-defined cloud this cloud continued to increase in size until it became evident that it could only be raised by a great multitude of moving creatures in more fertile spots the observer would have come to the conclusion that one of those great herds of bisons which graze upon the prairie land was approaching him this was obviously impossible in these arid wilds as the whirl of dust drew nearer to the solitary bluff upon which the two castaways were reposing the canvas-covered tilts of wagons and the figures of armed horsemen began to show up through the haze, and the apparition revealed itself as being a great caravan upon its journey for the west. But what a caravan! When the head of it had reached the base of the mountains, the rear was not yet visible on the horizon. Right across the enormous plain stretched this straggling array, wagons and carts, men on horseback, men on foot, innumerable women who staggered along under burdens and children who toddled beside the wagons or peeped out from under the white coverings this was evidently no ordinary party of immigrants, but rather some nomad people who had been compelled from stress of circumstances to seek themselves a new country there rose through the clear air a confused clattering and rumbling from this great mass of humanity with the creaking of wheels and the neighing of horses. Loud as it was, it was not sufficient to rouse the two tired wayfarers above them. At the head of the column there rode a score or more of grave iron-faced men, clad in somber homespun garments and armed with rifles. On reaching the base of the bluff they halted, and held a short council among themselves. The wells are to the right, my brothers. "'said one, a hard-lipped, clean-shaven man with grizzly hair. "'To the right of the Sierra Blanco, so we shall reach the Rio Grande,' said another. "'Fear not for water,' cried a third. "'He who could draw it from the rocks will not abandon his own chosen people.' "'Amen, amen,' responded the whole party. They were about to resume their journey when one of the youngest and keenest-eyed uttered an exclamation and pointed up to the ragged crag above them. From its summit there fluttered a little wisp of pink, showing up hard and bright against the gray rocks behind. At the sight there was a general reining up of horses and unslinging of guns, while fresh horsemen came galloping up to reinforce the vanguard. The word redskins was on every lip. "'There can't be any number of Injuns here,' said the elderly man, who appeared to be in command. We have passed the Pawnees, and there are no other tribes until we cross the great mountains. Shall I go forward and see, Brother Stangerson?' asked one of the band. "'And I, and I!' cried a dozen voices. "'Leave your horses below, and we will await you here,' the elder answered. In a moment, the young fellows had dismounted, fastened their horses, and were ascending the precipitous slope which led up to the object which had excited their curiosity. They advanced rapidly and noiselessly, with the confidence and dexterity of practiced scouts. The watchers from the plain below could see them flit from rock to rock until their figures stood out against the skyline. The young man who had first given the alarm was leading them. Suddenly, his followers saw him throw up his hands, as though overcome with astonishment, and on joining him they were affected in the same way by the sight which met their eyes. On the little plateau which crowned the barren hill there stood a single giant boulder, and against this boulder there lay a tall man, long-bearded and hard-featured, but of an excessive thinness. His placid face and regular breathing showed that he was fast asleep. Beside him lay a little child, with her round white arms encircling his brown sinewy neck, and her golden-haired head resting upon the breast of his velveteen tunic. Her rosy lips were parted, showing the regular line of snow-white teeth within, and a playful smile played over her infantile features. Her plump little white legs, terminating in white socks and neat shoes with shining buckles, offered a strange contrast to the long-shriveled members of her companion. On the ledge of rock above this strange couple there stood three solemn buzzards, who, at the sight of the newcomers, uttered raucous screams of disappointment, and flapped sullenly away. Cries of the foul birds awoke the two sleepers, who stared about them in bewilderment. The man staggered to his feet, and looked down upon the plain which had been so desolate when sleep had overtaken him, and which was now traversed by this enormous body of men and of beasts. His face assumed an expression of incredulity as he gazed, and he passed his bony hand over his eyes. "'This is what they call delirium, I guess,' he muttered. The child stood beside him, holding on to the skirt of his coat, and said nothing but looked all around her with the wondering, questioning gaze of childhood. The rescuing party was speedily able to convince the two castaways that their appearance was no delusion. One of them seized the little girl and hoisted her upon his shoulder, while two others supported her gaunt companion and assisted him towards the wagons. "'My name is John Ferrier,' the wanderer explained. "'Me and that little one are all that's left of twenty-one people. "'The rest is all dead of thirst and hunger away down in the south.' "'Is she your child?' asked someone. "'I guess she is now,' the other cried defiantly. "'She's mine because I saved her. "'No man will take her from me. "'She's Lucy Ferrier from Miss Day on. "'Who are you, though?' he continued, glancing with curiosity at his stalwart sunburned rescuers. "'There seems to be a powerful lot of ye.' "'Nigh upon ten thousand, said one of the young men, "'we are the persecuted children of God, the chosen of the angel Morona.' "'I never heard tell on him,' said the wanderer. "'He appears to have chosen a fair crowd of ye.' "'Do not jest at that which is sacred,' said the other sternly. We are of those who believe in those sacred writings, drawn in Egyptian letters on plates of beaten gold, which were handed unto the holy Joseph Smith at Palmyra. We have come from Nauvoo, in the state of Illinois, where we had founded our temple. We have come to seek a refuge from the violent man and from the godless, even though it be the heart of the desert. The name of Nauvoo evidently recalled recollections to John Ferrier. I see, he said you are the mormons we are the mormons answered his companions with one voice and where are you going we do not know the hand of god is leading us under the person of our prophet you must come before him he shall say what is to be done with you they had reached the base of the hill by this time and were surrounded by crowds of the pilgrims pale-faced meek-looking women strong laughing children and anxious, earnest-eyed men. Many were the cries of astonishment and of commiseration which arose from them when they perceived the youth of one of the strangers and the destitution of the other. The escort did not halt, however, but pushed on, followed by a great crowd of Mormons, until they reached a wagon which was conspicuous for its great size and for the gaudiness and smartness of its appearance. Six horses were yoked to it, whereas the others were furnished with two, or at most four apiece. Beside the driver there sat a man who could not have been more than thirty years of age, but whose massive head and resolute expression marked him as a leader. He was reading a brown-backed volume, but as the crowd approached he laid it aside and listened attentively to an account of the episode. Then he turned to the two castaways. "'If we take you with us,' he said in solemn words, it can only be as believers in our own creed. We shall have no wolves in our fold. Better far that your bones should bleach in this wilderness than that you should prove to be that little speck of decay which in time corrupts the whole fruit. Will you come with us on these terms? I guess I'll come with you on any terms, said Ferrier, with such emphasis that the grave elders could not restrain a smile. THE LEADER ALONE RETAINED HIS stern, IMPRESSIVE EXPRESSION. TAKE HIM, BROTHER STANGERSON, HE SAID. GIVE HIM FOOD AND DRINK, AND THE CHILD LIKEWISE. LET IT BE YOUR TASK ALSO TO TEACH HIM OUR HOLY CREED. WE HAVE DELAYED LONG ENOUGH. FORWARD. ON, ON TO ZION. ON, ON TO ZION, CRIED THE CROWD OF MORMONS, AND THE WORDS RIPPLED DOWN THE LONG CARAVAN, PASSING FROM MOUTH TO MOUTH until they died away in a dull murmur in the far distance. With a cracking of whips and a creaking of wheels, the great wagons got into motion, and soon the whole caravan was winding along once more. The elder, to whose care the two waifs had been committed, led them to his wagon, where a meal was already awaiting them. "'You shall remain here,' he said. "'In a few days you will have recovered from your fatigues.' In the meantime, remember that now and forever you are of our religion. Brigham Young has said it, and he has spoken with the voice of Joseph Smith, which is the voice of God. Chapter 2 The Flower of Utah This is not the place to commemorate the trials and privations endured by the immigrant Mormons before they came to their final haven from the shores of the Mississippi to the western slopes of the Rocky Mountains, they had struggled on with a constancy almost unparalleled in history. The savage man and the savage beast, hunger, thirst, fatigue, and disease, every impediment which nature could place in the way, had all been overcome with Anglo-Saxon tenacity. Yet the long journey and the accumulated terrors had shaken the hearts of the stoutest among them there was not one who did not sink upon his knees in heartfelt prayer when they saw the broad valley of Utah bathed in the sunlight beneath them and learned from the lips of their leader that this was the promised land and that these virgin acres were to be theirs forevermore. Young speedily proved himself to be a skillful administrator as well as a resolute chief. Maps were drawn and charts prepared in which the future city was sketched out all around farms were apportioned and allotted in proportion to the standing of each individual. The tradesman was put to his trade and the artisan to his calling. In the town streets and squares sprang up as if by magic. In the country there was draining and hedging, planting and clearing, until the next summer saw the whole county golden with the wheat crop. Everything prospered in this strange settlement. Above all, The great temple which they had erected in the centre of the city grew ever taller and larger. From the first blush of dawn until the closing of the twilight the clatter of the hammer and the rasp of the saw was never absent from the monument which the immigrants erected to him who had led them safe through many dangers. The two castaways, John Ferrier and the little girl who had shared his fortunes and had been adopted as his daughter, accompanied the Mormons to the end of their great pilgrimage. Little Lucy Ferrier was borne along pleasantly enough in Elder Stangerson's wagon, a retreat which she shared with the Mormons' three wives and with his son, a headstrong forward boy of twelve. Having rallied with the elasticity of childhood from the shock caused by her mother's death, she soon became a pet with the women, and reconciled herself to this new life in her moving canvas-covered home. In the meantime, Ferrier, having recovered from his privations, distinguished himself as a useful guide and an indefatigable hunter. So rapidly did he gain the esteem of his new companions, that when they reached the end of their wanderings, it was unanimously agreed that he should be provided with as large and as fertile a tract of land as any of the settlers, with the exception of Young himself, and of Stangerson, Campbell, Johnston, and Drebber. Who were the four principal elders on the farm thus acquired john ferrier built himself a substantial log-house which received so many additions in succeeding years that it grew into a roomy villa he was a man of a practical turn of mind keen in his dealings and skilful with his hands his iron constitution enabled him to work morning and evening at improving and tilling his lands Hence it came about that his farm and all that belonged to him prospered exceedingly. In three years he was better off than his neighbors, in six he was well-to-do, in nine he was rich, and in twelve there were not half a dozen men in the whole of Salt Lake City who could compare with him. From the great inland sea to the distant Wasatch Mountains there was no name better known than that of John Ferrier there was one way and only one in which he offended the susceptibilities of his co-religionists no argument or persuasion could ever induce him to set up a female establishment after the manner of his companions he never gave reasons for this persistent refusal but contented himself by resolutely and inflexibly adhering to his determination there were some who accused him of lukewarmness in his adopted religion and others who put it down to greed of wealth and reluctance to incur expense. Others, again, spoke of some early love affair and of a fair-haired girl who had pined away on the shores of the Atlantic. Whatever the reason, Farrier remained strictly celibate. In every other respect he conformed to the religion of the young settlement, and gained the name of being an orthodox and straight-walking man lucy ferrier grew up within the log-house and assisted her adopted father in all his undertakings the keen air of the mountains and the balsamic odor of the pine-trees took the place of nurse and mother to the young girl as year succeeded to year she grew taller and stronger her cheek more ruddy and her step more elastic Many a wayfarer upon the high road which ran by Ferrier's farm felt long-forgotten thoughts revive in their mind as they watched her lithe girlish figure tripping through the weed-fields, or met her mounted upon her father's mustang, and managing it with all the ease and grace of a true child of the West. So the bud blossomed into a flower, and the year which saw her father the richest of the farmers left her as fair a specimen of American girlhood as could be found in the whole Pacific Slope. It was not the father, however, who first discovered that the child had developed into the woman. It seldom is in such cases. That mysterious change is too subtle and too gradual to be measured by dates. Least of all does the maiden herself know it, until the tone of a voice or the touch of a hand sets her heart thrilling within her, and she learns, with a mixture of pride and of fear, that a new and a larger nature has awoken within her. There are few who cannot recall that day and remember the one little incident which heralded the dawn of a new life. In the case of Lucy Ferrier, the occasion was serious enough in itself, apart from its future influence on her destiny and that of many besides. It was a warm June morning, and the latter-day saints were as busy as bees, whose hive they have chosen for their emblem. In the fields and in the streets rose the same hum of human industry. Down the dusty high roads defiled long streams of heavily laden mules, all heading to the west, for the gold fever had broken out in California, and the overland route lay through the city of the elect. There, too, were droves of sheep and bullocks coming in from the outlying pasture-lands, and trains of tired immigrants, men and horses equally weary of their interminable journey. Through all this motley assemblage, threading her way with the skill of an accomplished rider, there galloped Lucy Ferrier, her fair face flushed with the exercise, and her long chestnut hair floating out behind her she had a commission from her father in the city and was dashing in as she had done many a time before with all the fearlessness of youth thinking only of her task and how it was to be performed the travel-stained adventurers gazed after her in astonishment and even the unemotional indians journeying in with their pelts relaxed their accustomed stoicism as they marvelled at the beauty of the pale-faced maiden She had reached the outskirts of the city when she found the road blocked by a great drove of cattle driven by a half-dozen wild-looking herdsmen from the plains. In her impatience she endeavored to pass this obstacle by pushing her horse into what appeared to be a gap. Scarcely had she got fairly into it, however, before the beasts closed in behind her, and she found herself completely embedded in the moving stream of fierce-eyed long-horned bullocks. Accustomed as she was to deal with cattle, she was not alarmed at her situation, but took advantage of every opportunity to urge her horse on in the hopes of pushing her way through the cavalcade. Unfortunately, the horns of one of the creatures, either by accident or design, came in violent contact with the flank of the mustang, and excited it to madness. In an instant it reared up upon its hind legs with a snort of rage and pranced and tossed in a way that would have unseated any but a most skilful rider. The situation was full of peril. Every plunge of the excited horse brought it against the horns again, and goaded it to fresh madness. There was all that the girl could do to keep herself in the saddle, yet a slip would mean a terrible death under the hoofs of the unwieldy and terrified animals. Unaccustomed to sudden emergencies, Her head began to swim, and her grip upon the bridle to relax. Choked by the rising cloud of dust, and by the steam from the struggling creatures, she might have abandoned her efforts in despair, but for a kindly voice at her elbow, which assured her of assistance. At the same moment a sinewy brown hand caught the frightened horse by the curb, and forcing a way through the drove, soon brought her to the outskirts. "'You're not hurt, I hope, miss,' said her preserver respectfully. She looked up at his dark, fierce face and laughed saucily. "'I'm awfully frightened,' she said naively. "'Whoever would have thought that Poncho would have been so scared by a lot of cows?' "'Thank God you kept your seat,' the other said earnestly. He was a tall, savage-looking young fellow, mounted on a powerful roan horse and clad in the rough dress of a hunter." with a long rifle slung over his shoulders. "'I guess you are the daughter of John Ferrier,' he remarked. "'I saw you ride down from his house. When you see him, ask him if he remembers the Jefferson hopes of St. Louis. If he's the same Ferrier, my father and he were pretty thick.' "'Hadn't you better come and ask yourself?' she asked demurely. The young fellow seemed pleased at the suggestion, and his dark eyes sparkled with pleasure. I'll do so, he said. "Uh, We've been in the mountains for two months, and are not over and above in visiting condition. He must take us as he finds us. He has a good deal to thank you for, and so have I, she answered. He's awfully fond of me. If those cows had jumped on me, he'd never got over it. Neither would I said her companion. You? Well, I don't see that it would make much matter to you, anyhow. You ain't even a friend of ours. The young hunter's dark face grew so gloomy over this remark that Lucy Ferrier laughed out loud. "Eh, I didn't mean that, she said. Of course you are a friend now. You must come and see us. Now I must push along, or father won't trust me with his business any more. "'Good-bye,' he answered, raising his broad sombrero and bending over her little hand. She wheeled her Mustang round, gave it a cut with her riding-whip, and darted away down the broad road in a rolling cloud of dust. Young Jefferson Hope rode on with his companions, gloomy and taciturn. He and they had been among the Nevada mountains, prospecting for silver and were returning to Salt Lake City in the hope of raising capital enough to work some loads which they had discovered. He had been as keen as any of them upon the business until this sudden incident had drawn his thoughts into another channel. The sight of the fair young girl, as frank and wholesome as the Sierra breezes, had stirred his volcanic, untamed heart to its very depths. When she had vanished from his sight, he realized that a crisis had come in his life and that neither silver speculations nor any other questions could ever be of such importance to him as this new and all-absorbing one the love which had sprung up in his heart was not the sudden changeable fancy of a boy but rather the wild fierce passion of a man of strong will and imperious temper he had been accustomed to succeed in all that he undertook He swore in his heart that he would not fail in this if human effort and human perseverance could render him successful. He called on John Ferrier that night, and many times again, until his face was a familiar one at the farmhouse. John, cooped up in the valley and absorbed in his work, had had little chance of learning the news of the outside world during the last twelve years. All this Jefferson Hope was able to tell him and in a style which interested Lucy as well as her father. He had been a pioneer in California, and could narrate many a strange tale of fortunes made and fortunes lost in those wild Halcyon days. He had been a scout, too, and a trapper, a silver explorer, and a ranchman. Wherever stirring adventures were to be had, Jefferson Hope had been there in search of them. He soon became a favorite with the old farmer, who spoke eloquently of his virtues. On such occasions Lucy was silent, but her blushing cheek and her bright, happy eyes showed only too clearly that her young heart was no longer her own. Her honest father may not have observed these symptoms, but they were assuredly not thrown away upon the man who had won her affections. It was a summer evening when he came galloping down the road and pulled up at the gate. She was at the doorway and came down to meet him. He threw the bridle over the fence and strode up the pathway. "'I am off, Lucy,' he said, taking her two hands in his and gazing tenderly down into her face. "'I won't ask you to come with me now, but will you be ready to come when I am here again?' "'And when will that be?' she asked, blushing and laughing a couple of months at the outside. I will come and claim you then, my darling, as no one who can stand between us.' "'And how about my father?' she asked. "'He has given his consent, provided we get these mines working all right. I have no fear on that head.' "'Oh, well, of course. If you and father have arranged it all, there's no more to be said.' she whispered with her cheek against his broad breast. "'Thank God!' he said, hoarsely, stooping and kissing her. "'It is settled, then. The longer I stay, the harder it will be to go. They are waiting for me at the canyon. Good-bye, my own darling, good-bye. Two months you shall see me.' He tore himself from her as he spoke, and flinging himself upon his horse, Galloped furiously away, never even looking round, as though afraid that his resolution might fail him if he took one glance at what he was leaving. She stood at the gate, gazing after him until he vanished from her sight. Then she walked back into the house, the happiest girl in all Utah.
0: End of chapter 2